Hello and welcome back to the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Newfield. Today is the last episode of my series on building your own investment approach. We're going to wrap up by looking at some characteristics of companies that you might want to consider for building a long-term investing portfolio. couple months back, I did an episode about factor investing. You might have seen that one. If you haven't, feel free to go back and check that one out. And this episode today looks at some of those factors a little bit more and compares them against a pure indexing approach. Again, that's not really the goal is to disprove one thing or another. If you're new here, my goal in this series is not to fight against index fund investing by any means, but just to discuss a few ways that you could approach investing beyond dogmatic advice on the internet from people that haven't done this before and haven't given advice to people on how to build investment portfolios. I personally like index funds and I have a good chunk of my own money in index funds, but there are other ways to invest that you might prefer and that's okay. So let's get into the specifics of today's episode. I'm going to be looking at the size of companies and relative price of companies. Maybe that's a bit of a mouthful for you there, but this is more commonly known as small cap and large cap investing along with growth and value investing. So when you look at a pure index fund approach, by default, they'll primarily invest in large cap stocks, but are large cap stocks the best place to earn the best returns over time? Actually, history has shown us that small cap stocks have provided superior returns. So let's go into the performance of small caps versus large caps in Canada, US, international developed markets and emerging markets. So looking at Canada, When I'm quoting this data here, I'm taking it from our friends at Dimensional, and Dimensional uses the best data that they can going back as far as they can for that data. So the U.S. has the best data, and other regions around the world have less comprehensive data, but we'll just take a look and see what's available. So in Canada, going back to 1988, small caps have outperformed large caps on average per year, 8.89 to 8.56. So the benefit in the small caps in Canada is there, but it isn't that large. But in the U.S., they have data going back to 1928. So, And this goes up to the end of 2021, by the way. So from 1928 to 2021, small caps outperform large caps 12.14 to 10.19. That's crazy. It's almost 2% per year for over 90 years. Again, that is pockmarked with periods of time where that was not the case. But on average, that has been the outcome. Now, in developed markets, not in the U.S. or Canada, going back to 1970, that's over 50 years here, small caps actually have a much larger gap here of outperformance over its large cap competitors, 14.17% versus 9.4. That's nearly 5% per year for 50 years. And then emerging markets, so think places like China and India, Brazil would be in there too. Going back to 1989, small caps have outperformed large caps in emerging markets 12.56% to 9.7% per year. So depending on the region, some parts of the world have a much larger premium for this factor, but it has been pervasive across the globe and across time periods. So back to an index fund for a second there. Using a pure index investing approach, generally speaking, uses a market cap weighted index, market cap, large cap, small cap. All of these are just referring to how big they are. And so in a market cap weighted index fund, what that means is that you're owning more of the largest companies. And as they get bigger, you're going to own more of them yet. 
So now when the top five largest companies make up, let's call it 20% of the whole index, well, 20% of your entire investment is in five companies, let alone large caps in general. I'm just using U.S. stocks here as a hypothetical example, but let's use some real numbers here and we can take a look at, at a few specifics so you can get an understanding for where I'm coming from. So I like using Morningstar. So if you go to Morningstar.ca, it's a free tool that you can use to evaluate investments and take a look at data and things like that. And when you look up an S&P 500 ETF, let's use Vanguard's because they have a Canadian version. It's looking up VFV. So that's Vanguard Canada's S&P 500 index fund. What you can do there is on Morningstar, if you go to the portfolio section, you can actually take a look and see what the characteristics of that portfolio are. And over on one side, they've got this kind of nine by nine chart that shows things like large, medium, and small, and value blend and growth. I'm going to get to the value and the growth side of things, but just taking a look at the S&P 500 ETF, literally 0% of it is invested in small caps. And that makes sense because it's essentially the 500 largest companies in, in the US there. So if you're looking for the historical outperformance of small caps, you're not going to find it in the S&P 500. Okay, so what if then you say, well, I'm going to own something like VUN. That's the Vanguard ETF that looks at the U.S. total market. It's like, okay, well, I'm not just going to look at the 500 largest companies. I'm going to look at the total market. Let's do the same thing here. So if we look at the Vanguard U.S. total market, go over to that portfolio section on Morningstar, and we can take a look at the stock style map. It gets a little bit better, a little bit better. So in this ETF, it owns pretty close to 9% of it is invested in small caps. So you start to get a little bit more exposure there than you would from an S&P 500. However, using a pure index fund approach like this, you can't really get meaningful exposure without going to a dedicated small cap fund. And with that comes some more risks and difficulty and they're tougher to access and they're less liquid and, and things like that. So adding specific small cap funds to your portfolio might be a challenge. There are other funds from different companies that you might not have heard of before. One would be from a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors or DFA and their U.S. core equity fund takes a similar approach to what an index fund tries to do. So they try to own the whole market, but they will own more of the parts of the market that have evidence that has shown outperformance over time. So let's just look at small caps here for a second. So using the fund from Dimensional, their small cap exposure actually gets closer to 16%. Okay, so these are all one fund comparisons here, all looking at the US market and all very, very low cost. So yes, even though the Dimensional fund is a mutual fund, heaven forbid, it is actually very low cost, about 0.2% MER. So this fund gives you a total U.S. market access, but it leans in a little bit more into the small cap side of the market. So if you're an investor and you just want the big largest companies and you think there's some sort of safety that comes along with that, maybe the S&P 500 or the TSX 60, you know, aiming for those large parts of developed markets would be the thing for you. But if part of your strategy is trying to maximize your returns over time, Leaning into something like small caps in the U.S., in Canada, and internationally could be a good way to go. There are some ways to do that, like I showed you with investing in total market ETFs. And Vanguard's portfolio series 
they will invest in total markets as well, including some small caps. It ends up being a pretty small potatoes amount when it's all said and done. So if you really like the idea of maximizing your expected returns based on what the evidence says, using something like dimensional fund advisors could be a good way to go. Unfortunately, if you're a DIY investor, they're not available to the general public. But if you know an advisor that can use dimensional funds, that might be something that is worth talking to them about. Now, just a word of caution here. So assuming and understanding that greater return comes with greater risk, we assume that risk and return are correlated at some level. Small cap investing is not for everyone, and there will be periods of time where small caps don't perform well, including very recently. So your time horizon should be long and your risk tolerance should be high enough to be investing this way. Like I said, the very recent past has been one of those times of recent underperformance, so your evaluation of this strategy should be both aware of that possibility and, on the positive side though, aware of the long-term evidence that suggests the opposite in terms of the performance. So for me, the evidence is pretty compelling that investing in small caps, even though it can increase volatility and the risk of underperformance over a short period of time, the evidence points to long track records of outperformance for investing this way. So it's a little bit harder to do. It's a little bit tougher to understand. These companies aren't as followed in the news, so it's tough to know as well what what's going on in small caps. But as far as the evidence goes, leaning into small caps even a little bit more can hopefully boost your long-term results. Now that's just the size factor. So let's take a look at one other factor that's really common for people to look at. We'll call it growth or value, Okay. So growth stocks often get all the press and publicity. This is your same lines as large cap stocks. They're, they're popular for being popular. But even though growth stocks get all the press and publicity and news headlines, value stocks have shown to outperform over a long period of time in markets around the world, just like small caps have. Now, growth stocks are the idea that you're paying for profit and growth tomorrow. So like customers or users are growing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the company is profitable. So you might think at the surface, like, well, I, of course I want growth stocks. I don't want stagnant stocks, but it's more so based on how the company is being valued here. So value investing looks at the stock price and looks for good deals. So no one would say that investing in Tesla is a good deal based on where things are today. But the argument is that the price today is reflective of where that company might end up. So you want to get on the rocket ship while it's going. You're overpaying for today's profits, but if you kind of extrapolate the trajectory of user growth and profit growth and all that kind of stuff, those companies would be reflective of a growth style. So they're not cheap, they're not a good deal, but you're trying to get on as the company is is growing like crazy. Value investing does not try to do that. It isn't exciting necessarily, but it has the evidence behind it that if you maintain that that approach for a long period of time, you could outperform. So Warren Buffett is probably the most famous value investor, and his success is marked by a few things, longevity being a a big one because he's stuck with it for a long time. He's in his mid-90s, but low turnover, meaning he's not trading it every day, and consistency. So he's stuck with a value style for a very, very long period of time, and even when it looks like he's lost his touch... You always see those news headlines like, oh, is Warren Buffett actually no longer relevant? It's like, well, it doesn't matter if it's him. It's it's the, the value style goes in and out of favor from time to time. But inevitably, his performance comes around and people give him his credit again, just like what we saw last year. 
So just like a regular value investor, Warren Buffett has to stick with the, the approach and there'll be periods of time where you look foolish. But time after time, in the long run, a value approach is shown to provide strong performance for stock investors. So when we look at value, there's a few different metrics that you can look at. Some of them are based on earnings. Some of them are based on assets. But you can look at things like a price-to-book ratio or a price-to-earnings ratio. And each one of those, that could be a, a, a topic for a different episode, perhaps. So when we talk about companies that are either value or growth based on, let's say, price-to-book ratio, they won't always fit into that one category and stay there which is why it's really tough to to be a specifically value or specifically growth investor. Let's take Meta, for example. So company used to be known as Facebook. So hate them or love them. They're one of the largest companies in the world. And, and very recently, the share price of Meta was as high as about 350 bucks. It was highly profitable, growing like crazy. And by most metrics, most people would call it an expensive stock. So that would be a growth stock, put it in the growth category. So at that point... They were well on their way to throwing money at this idea of the metaverse, which is like a cash furnace. <laughs> like They're just throwing money at it, and it, they don't anticipate it being profitable for a very, very long time. So when the stock price is going up, and then they're leaning into this idea of the metaverse, shareholders are like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. Like <laughs> Our money's just disappearing, disappearing into the metaverse here. Like It's just going up in smoke almost. So... That wasn't great for for shareholders in in, in their minds, especially as interest rates started climbing. And as I talked about a few episodes ago, that makes it a lot more difficult to have a spaghetti at the wall type of business. Along with that, Apple changed their privacy rules, and you've probably seen all that, but it really affected Meta because their ads were less effective, and so then they they couldn't charge as much for them. And so on a profitability standpoint, that really hurt them. On top of that, some key executives left the company. Sheryl Sandberg was their chief operating officer. She was kind of like the North Star for that company. Everyone knows Mark Zuckerberg, but Sheryl Sandberg was kind of running the show and and she was the quote-unquote adult in the room there. She's now left the company. And so when all these things were kind of happening within pretty well 12 months, share price got smoked. And and people didn't care if it was a growth company anymore because those things were, were scary enough to spook enough investors. So at one point last year, the share price was down below a hundred bucks a share. So at its high, about 350 below a hundred at one point, that was just very recently here in October. So even though the core business was still making money, the market was not interested in overpaying for the stock. So it went from a growth company to a value company very, very quickly on a price to book metric. So I referenced that before kind of at its peak, the numbers that I could find anyways, the peak was about 7.4 price to book and then it went down all the way to 2.9 so they had great assets and things like that good cash flow everything that you would want from a good business but the price was now just reflective of more so what have you done for me lately as opposed to what are you going to do in the next 10 years investors in meta stopped caring about that so they sold it off and the the metrics changed and so now meta went to be a value company so now they just earned, announced earnings again very recently here, which were fine. But the, the biggest change was the tone from management. So kind of like I talked about on that news podcast a few episodes back, companies like Meta are going to start tightening their belt. And Mark Zuckerberg came on the call here and he was describing this year as the year of efficiency for Meta. That's a whole lot different than throwing 
billions and billions and billions of dollars at this concept of the metaverse. Investors wanted to see that. So they love to hear the the news and the the approach, uh, fiscal responsibility, all that kind of stuff. They wanted to hear that. So the stock price actually jumped up 25% in a single day this week. Okay, so now I don't I don't want to tell this story to say that if you buy value companies, you're going to get outsized returns like that in one day. No. I just wanted to illustrate the fact that companies aren't stagnant and they change sometimes very quickly. And so growing from growth to value, perhaps maybe back to growth already within a year, it can be very difficult to keep up. So for all of the metas and other companies that that have a similar story here that are value companies and then have a huge pop over a short period of time, there are lots of companies that just go to zero. So value investing isn't chasing penny stocks. It's looking for the boring, financially prudent companies that churn out profits. So let's look at the numbers and see why you might want to point your portfolio towards more of a value-centric approach. So let's look at growth versus value. I'm going to try to do the U.S., Canada, international, and emerging markets data as well as I can. Keep up with me because I know you can't read this as I'm saying it here on the podcast. But again, the U.S. has the longest track record and the best global data here. But all of the data, again, holds up in all of the different markets that I described to you before. Same thing as size. So since 1928, value has outperformed growth 12.6 to 9.76 on average per year for 93 years. 93 years. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty compelling. I'm just going to keep moving here. In Canada, we have data going back to 1977 in this case of 44 years. That was up until the end of 2021. So 44 years, value outperformed growth in Canada 10.85 to 8.29 per year for 44 years. Again, very compelling. So in emerging markets, the outperformance is even more striking, but over a smaller sample size. So it goes back to to 1990, so that's 31 years in this case. And in emerging markets, value outperformed growth 11.28 to 6.61%. Pretty crazy. And then developed markets, data goes back to 1975. The performance of value over growth per year, 13.05% versus 8.96%. If these were kind of flash in the pan ideas, they wouldn't be as pervasive or they might be country specific or things like that. But the data that we have here and the evidence that has been put up against academic research over and over again is that these are for factors that that can be highlighted, that can be invested in, and that you can have as part of your portfolio for the reasons of long-term outperformance. I think the evidence is very compelling, but again, that comes along with greater risk. So risk being volatility, but also the risk of underperformance over a short and extended periods of time. Value investing makes you look like a loser sometimes. And the last 10 years, up until about the end of 2020, That was the largest period of time where growth actually outperformed value in the history of the data that we have. So now in the last couple of years, the tables have turned a little bit again and value started to look pretty good relative to growth. So they will ebb and flow over time. But if you think the evidence is compelling, you have to stick with it for a long enough period that you can actually get those outsized returns. Because timing the market and timing factors is nearly impossible to do. So you have to go where the evidence suggests you should be and, and stay there as long as you possibly can. Okay, let's do the same exercise as what we did with small and large cap, just looking at real ETFs and mutual funds that you could own and to see what the different exposures are for those funds and ETFs. So if you look back at the VFV, so that is the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, that provides 21% of the exposure in that fund 
is to value stocks. Okay, that's fine. You don't necessarily want 100% in, in any one direction, I wouldn't say, because of that risk of underperformance over time, but 21%, that's how it is. With VUN, so that's the U.S. total market, it goes up a little bit more because there's a, a few more value stocks that you can find in, in the smaller companies. 22% exposure to value stocks. So it doesn't really change a whole lot. So that, again, this idea of diversification, if you own the S&P 500 and you own the U.S. total market, it's not really providing anything meaningfully different in that way. But if we compare it to something like the Dimensional Funds U.S. Core Equity Fund, 28% of this fund has exposure to value stocks. So if you want to follow the academic evidence that shows the outperformance of small caps and value, generally speaking, pure market cap weighted index strategies don't give the best exposure to those parts of the market, which is why active managers have typically leaned into these types of philosophies because they can see the evidence too. And they might feel like if they can just find the good companies that happen to be categorized as value and just find the good companies that are small versus large, they can have outsized returns on their own. Whereas companies like Dimensional and there's other index strategies that would follow that approach, they say, okay, well, we don't need to pick stocks to get the exposure to these factors. And so you can do it in a systematic way as well. So going back to some of my other episodes in this series, you can be tactical, active, passive, strategic, all, all of the different things that I had mentioned before and still get exposure to some of these factors as well, if you care. Now, I don't have a problem with, with index fund investing, and do you need to get little shreds of outperformance over long periods of time by looking at factors like value and growth and, and small versus large, and there's many other factors as well. Do you need to do that? No, not necessarily. If you want to be involved in your portfolio, or if you're someone like myself that's an advisor that's trying to do as best as they possibly can for their clients, investing in this way makes good sense to me and it is backed by evidence. So I really like an evidence-based approach wherever possible. I like low cost as well. And so there are ways that you can do this where you can get exposure to those parts of the market that are typically tougher to get from a typical index fund strategy while still being low cost. I won't go into a big sales pitch here by any means, but I just wanted to highlight that there are alternatives out there for this that have shown to outperform over a long period of time. So I hope this series has been valuable for you as you kind of come up with your own portfolio over time. If you listen to this and you said, you know what, I'm just going to go with whatever I've always done, that's great. But at least you have a little bit more understanding of what your current investment strategy might be, even if you didn't pick it. If you work with an advisor, if you want to be hands-off, now you can understand a little bit more what your portfolio may or may not be doing for you and where some opportunities might be over time. If you're a DIYer, I really hope the takeaway from this series was not that you need to get more complicated, but there are lots of considerations when you're going online and you're seeing headlines about which stocks to pick and all this kind of stuff. And then you go on the online forums and they're saying you're an idiot if you buy anything other than index funds. It's like, okay, well, it doesn't have to be so binary. There's lots of different ways that you can make things work. The biggest thing is investing in the first place, having a strategy that you can stick to for the longest period of time, contributing to your investments out of your income for the longest period of time. That is the thing that will improve your odds of success through your investing life. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I'm excited to uh, to move on to some other topics here in investing and your financial life. 
If you like this episode or if you like this series, I'd really appreciate if you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or if you're on Spotify, you can leave a star rating there. If you're able to do that, it helps other people find the podcast a little bit more and hopefully we can help other people. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. Any rates of return or investments discussed are historical or hypothetical and are intended to be used for educational purposes only. You should always consult with your financial, legal, and tax advisors before making changes to your financial plan. Evan Neufeld is a certified financial planner and registered investment fund advisor. Mutual funds and ETFs are provided by Sterling Mutuals, Inc.